Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash GXR. This activity is supported by an educational grant from BI and Eli Lilly Alliance. This educational content is not intended for U.S. based physicians. Welcome to this Pure Voice Talks on Heart Failure. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Javed Butler. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Greetings. I am Dr. Javed Butler, President of the Baylor Spartan White Research Institute in Dallas, Texas, and Distinguished Professor of Medicine at University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm delighted to be here with you to discuss the management of patients with heart failure and what are the latest updates in this respect. So let's just start with a, a all-too-common case scenario that we all see in the clinical practice. Patient with history of heart failure has been doing what we call okay. Uh, okay because we asked the patient in our rushed clinical scenario if the patient, anything drastic has happened, the patient says no, that they are hanging in there, okay. But when you probe a little bit more, you find out that they're a little bit more short of breath, they're a little bit more tired, but really nothing dramatic has changed. Then you probe a little bit more in their history and you find out uh, that, you know, they have really altered their lifestyle. Uh, they used to go out on a daily basis. Now, perhaps they go out a couple of days a week. Uh, they used to be able to easily manage all the chores at home, but now they ask their family members, their kids to help them. So as you probe, you really figure out that when they say that they're doing okay, they're actually doing okay by adjusting their lifestyle to the disease, but not really what they used to be able to do. They're on fairly reasonable medical therapy. They have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Their ejection fraction is low. And they are in, on triple therapy with uh, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and MRA. So you suggest to them, you know what? Maybe we should optimize your therapy. There are new options available for us to treat you. And the patient resists that I'm already taking too many pills. I'm already taking these pills for heart failure. Uh, perhaps they have other comorbidities and they're taking other medications. So the question is, uh, is the patient right? Uh, should we just leave the patient alone uh, because the patient is doing so, quote-unquote, okay, really nothing drastic has happened, and the patient is already taking too many medications. And the answer is an emphatic no. We should not leave the patient alone, and here are some of the reasons. <clears throat> so, let's first talk about the epidemiology of the disease. Heart failure, very common, increasing in prevalence, increasing in incidence, partly related to uh, aging of the population partly related to the fact that uh, the comorbidities in the general population continues to increase, partly because we have gotten really good at treating other acute diseases like ischemic heart disease, valvular heart disease, that patients who may have died in the past, now they survive longer, but they develop heart failure. So there's a whole lot of reasons because of which heart failure incidence and prevalence is increasing. Regardless whether it is heart failure with reduced or preserved ejection fraction, the outcomes of these patients are, are literally horrendous. I mean, we are talking about 40 to 50% five-year mortality risk, recurrent hospitalization risk. And if they get hospitalized, the chances of mortality are almost 30%, 25-30% in one year, and uh, uh, about 25% uh, risk of readmissions within one month and 50% readmission within six months. 
Not only uh, is the risk of mortality and hospitalization high, but the risk of uh, deteriorating quality of life and functional capacity is pretty substantial as well. And all of these are the same for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So we have a common disease with bad clinical outcomes and bad quality of life outcomes. So the answer to the first issue is uh, that these patients really need to be treated well. In fact, I would say that as cliche as it may sound, uh, the best treatment is prevention. So if we actually treat our patients in the primary care setting, in the specialty setting well for their risk factors like uh, high blood pressure and diabetes and obesity, et cetera, we may be able to prevent heart failure. But then let's come to our patient who already has heart failure. So then the next question comes up that, yes, I gave you a lot of stats, but these are the stats on new onset heart failure, perhaps. But what about a person like this? This person is already on three different medication. <clears throat> so in this particular patient, what is the residual risk? Is the residual risk so low that adding or changing medications at this time will not make any difference? And again, the answer is absolutely no. Yes, at a relative scale with these therapies, we have improved the outcome for these patients pretty substantially. But at an absolute level, despite these therapies, the patients remain at a substantial risk uh, for morbidity and mortality. There's a substantial residual risk, which mandates that first, we need to do more research so that we can find more therapeutic opportunities. But two, whatever is available now, we need to give those therapies to further reduce the risk. If you look at the clinical trials uh, that have recently come out, in which patients were given therapy, which usually is actually not even given in the clinical setting. Uh, so patients are on like 90 plus percent RAS inhibitor use, 90 plus percent beta blocker use, uh, 70, 80 percent MRA use. And in the treatment arm of SGLT2 inhibitors, 100 percent of the patients by definition were on SGLT2 inhibitor. And yet we are looking at an annualized event rate of between 10 and 15 percent. So these patients are really at high risk. And in a case like this, that the person has two glaring opportunities, is not on RNA therapy and is not on an SGLT2 inhibitors, there's a lot that we can do. There was actually a recently very nice uh, study published in The Lancet that suggested that people on ACE inhibitor and beta blocker, if you change that uh, to an RNA beta blocker, MRA, and an SGLT2 inhibitor in heart failure patients, you're talking about increasing patient survival in by six plus years, six plus years. So the benefits here are substantial. Reduce the risk of hospitalization, reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death, improve quality of life, improve functional capacity. Uh, so we can really, really help our patients. And the best time to uptitrate uh, up these therapies is exactly the kind of patient that we described before things go really bad. Now, what are the therapeutic options that we can uh, do for this patient? So if you look at the past, our focus of therapy for heart failure was primarily neurohormonal modulation. Uh, there were uh, huge successes, but there were a couple of problems that we encountered. First, that we, we seem to have hit a ceiling. Uh, there were other neurohormonal blockers that were tried, like vasopressin antagonists and endothelin blocker, uh, blockers that did not improve outcomes. The second issue is that there is a Difference in pathophysiology uh, with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. 
And neurohormonal activation is not a major feature in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, especially when you're looking at really normal ejection fraction, you don't get much uh, activation of the neurohormonal system. So what we needed were therapies that are now looking at alternate pathways and perhaps pathways that are even common to half-ref and half-pep. And if you were to be successful in those cases, then you may have therapies that, which are uh, unifying therapies for both half-ref and half-pep, irrespective of the patient's left ventricular ejection fraction. And indeed, that is exactly what SGLT2 inhibitors are. Mechanism of SGLT2 inhibitors are complex and uh, have been written about quite a lot. And, and, you know, we are actually even learning more and more every single day. There are some new studies coming out. But suffice it to say that these drugs, either in animal studies or human studies, have now been shown to improve cardiac structure and function, left ventricular reverse remodeling, atrial function, fibrosis, diastolic function, left ventricular hypertrophy in uh, uh, people with, uh, with uh, uh, high LV mass or LVH. Uh, uh, they're associated with improved vascular function and structure, so endothelial function, uh, arterial stiffness, renal function preservation, natriuresis, decrease intrarenal pressures, and then a whole bunch of systemic effects. While these drugs were initially developed for the management of diabetes, and they are great anti-diabetic agents, and uh, they have been shown to improve glycemic control, but they are truly uh, a cardiovascular risk-modifying agents because all of these other characteristics are irrespective of the diabetes status. And this vast <coughs> mechanism of action, the pharmacodynamic effect, uh, makes them ideal candidates for a potential for benefit in both half-ref and half-pec. And indeed, that is exactly what the clinical trials are showing. So coming back to our case, the bottom line is that, yes, this patient is on an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and MRA. They are quote-unquote doing okay, meaning nothing drastic has happened, but there is plenty of residual risk. If we probe the history more, they are not really doing okay and clearly optimizing this patient's medical therapy, switching an ACE inhibitor to an ARNI, adding an SGLT2 inhibitor, optimizing their doses if their hemodynamics permit, will substantially improve their chances of living longer, not getting hospitalized, and improving their quality of life. Thank you. Greetings. I am Dr. Javed Butler. I'm a cardiologist, president of the Baylor Scott & White Research Institute in Dallas, Texas, and distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. So let's discuss a common case scenario that the cardiologists today are facing more and more. Uh, every six months, every eight months, there's a new trial coming out with patients uh, with heart failure, acute heart failure, chronic heart failure, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, where there is some trial that shows benefit with the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. But there is a little bit of a discomfort in the cardiology community that these drugs are really anti-hyperglycemic drugs. They're the diabetic medications. And why should I treat a, a patient with a medication that is for the management of diabetes? And if I do treat the patients, what do I have to watch? You know, do I have to address insulin? Do I have to now become an endocrinologist for the management of these patients? So, so we are growing uh, as a cardiology community 
uh, or other subspecialists as well, sort of the non-endocrine, non-primary care uh, communities to try to figure out how to best use these medications. And then on the endocrine community and the primary care community uh, side, that actually has a little bit more experience over the past years of using these therapies. There, the mindset is, again, that these are anti-diabetic medications. And why should we give these medications to patients without diabetes? So there's a whole lot of sort of learning and mind shifting that needs to occur to potentially optimally utilize these medications. So our patients, regardless whether they're class two, class three, class four, regardless whether they are HEF-PEF or HEF-REF, regardless whether they are on baseline two medications or three medications for heart failure, the data at this point would suggest that all of these patients needs to be started on an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, because we have plenty of data with two SGLT2 inhibitors, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin, that have shown to improve outcome for these patients. So let's talk a little bit about SGLT2 inhibitors and heart failure. First, there are two groups of patients, patients with type 2 diabetes and those patients with chronic kidney disease, regardless whether they have type 2 diabetes or not, where there, uh, there are data that is strongly suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors prevent the development of heart failure. We all know that type 2 diabetes patients and patients with chronic kidney disease are really set up at really high risk for developing uh, heart failure and what better than to prevent heart failure in the first place? There are multiple trials in type 2 diabetes that show that there are almost like a 30% reduction in the risk of new onset heart failure. And so the first thing I would say, even before talking about the management of heart failure patients, is actually uh, that patients with chronic kidney disease, patients with type 2 diabetes who have the indication, the guidelines have moved in that direction, that these therapies should be started up front to prevent the development of heart failure as well. So now let's come to patients who already have developed heart failure. There were two large programs with uh, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin, uh, respectively across the spectrum of heart failure. Both programs uh, were divided into two sister trials, HEF-REF, EF 40% or less, or HEF-PEF with EF greater than 40%. What is remarkable is that all four clinical trials were positive. They were not only positive for all the outcomes that they were intended to look at, including uh, hospitalization risk, combined endpoint of cardiovascular uh, uh, mortality and hospitalization, recurrent heart failure hospitalization, first and total heart failure hospitalization, and uh, renal function preservation as assessed by EGFR slope and quality of life score. So really positive across board for all the outcomes that we were uh, 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 looking for and our concern in patients with heart failure. And the DELIVER trial that recently came out in patients with HEFPEF actually included patients with heart failure and recovered EF. You know, this is a group of patients that we really did not know much about in terms of medical therapy. So these are the patients whose EF used to be less than 40%, but on some other therapies is now greater than 40%. So their EF has recovered. What to do with them? And even those patients, when, they, when, S, when an SGLT2 inhibitor was started, they had substantial benefit. Moreover, uh, with empagliflozin, there was another trial done uh, called Impulse trial, where the drug was started in the hospital setting. And there were actually two questions there. One, 
not only would it be uh, efficacious if you give it to patients in the hospital setting as opposed to the outpatient setting uh, where all of these other trials were done, uh, will it be safe? Because there were all of these concerns whether or not to give these therapies in the acute setting. And again, small trial, about 500 patient, 90-day outcome. But again, the combined endpoint of uh, a win ratio of uh, mortality, morbidity, and quality of life, even in that short time frame, was positive convincingly. So at this point, uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as GLT-2 inhibitors are considered foundational therapy that all patients with HFREF in the absence of contraindication should get RAS inhibitor, beta blocker, MRA, and an SGLT2 inhibitor. Now, the guidelines are evolving for HFPEF, but with two trials being positive, uh, one can expect that uh, it will become a class one recommended therapy across the spectrum of ejection fraction, irrespective of EF in HFREF and HFPEF. So, all of our patients uh, deserve this therapy. So what are some of the considerations when we give this therapy? So this is where some practical uh, uh, tips are really important. Uh, one big question comes up, well, uh, these drugs have diuretic properties, so do I change the diuretic dose when I start this therapy? And the answer is absolutely not. When we did the clinical trials and the other uh, clinical trials were done, uh, the diuretic therapy at the baseline did not need to be adjusted. Now, of course, we are all clinicians. We'll use our best clinical judgment. We cannot take the data from, you know, several thousand patients' clinical trial, uh, <clears throat> take the average data, and uh, 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 use that for our patients. Uh, so if you have an older patient, patient with lower blood pressure, some orthostatic symptoms, uh, then proactively cutting down the dose of their loop diuretic makes a lot of sense. But that's left to individual uh, clinical judgment. But as a standard, we don't need to t uh, change uh, any of the medication. Uh, what about uh, do we need to use any specific sequencing? And the answer is, again, absolutely not. The guidelines have completely moved away from sequencing. How can we have any specific sequencing be recommended that give this first, this second, you know, wait this long? Uh, how can we use the same algorithm for sequencing when not all our patients are the same, right? Uh, patients come in with high blood pressure, low blood pressure, different potassiums, different creatinine, different heart rates, atrial fibrillation, congestion. So we have to use our clinical judgment. So the guidelines now recommend what therapies to give sort of gives you the destination, but how do you go to that destination is not, uh, not uh, spelled out. It's left up to the clinician. And in that sense, the SGLT2 inhibitor really have an edge that not only they are incredibly well tolerated in all phenotypes of the patients that I just mentioned, they can actually facilitate other therapies as well. For instance, if you're congested, you're not going to tolerate beta blockers, uh, but SGLT2 inhibitor, because of their diuretic properties, uh, makes it easier for beta blocker to be tolerated. Patients with low EGFR or potassium on the higher side may not tolerate MRAs, but now there is a substantial body of evidence that SGLT2 inhibitor lower uh, the risk of hyperkalemia, uh, so they may uh, enable the use of MRA therapy as well. One big question people have in their mind is, uh, one, should I use a therapy in patients without diabetes? And two, uh, if somebody has diabetes, do I need to change other anti-diabetic medications? So the answer to the first question is uh, the mechanism of action of this drug is really diffuse and is not related to glycemic control. So there is plenty of data that have now convincingly and confirmatorily suggested that the therapies work. And not only do they work, 
they work to the same extent. There's no heterogeneity in terms of benefit in patients with and without uh, diabetes. So absolutely heart failure patients without diabetes need to be treated with this medication. <clears throat> now, what about if you do have diabetes? What about the side effect profile in terms of the glycemic control? So first, the mechanism of action of these drugs are such uh, that they are very unlikely to cause hypoglycemia, right? Because if you don't have high glucose, you won't be peeing a lot of glucose in the urine, and that's where these drugs work. So the only time there's a higher risk of hypoglycemia, uh, it, that is not with, with drugs like DPP-4 inhibitors or GLB-1 receptor agonists. It's with insulin therapy and secretagogues like sulfonylurea. So again, we use our best clinical judgment. If somebody uh, is hemoglobin A1C is 8, 8.159, they don't have a history of hypoglycemia, then, then just add this drug. It will actually improve your glycemic control. On the other hand, if somebody has a very tight uh, glucose control, their hemoglobin A1C is already 6.97, or they have history of hypoglycemia, then cutting down the dose of uh, uh, insulin by, say, 30%, or stopping sulfonyl, uh, the uh, uh, ureas will, will uh, uh, makes makes a lot of sense. So changing their secretagogues will will make sense. Now, of course, if you're uncomfortable and if you want to do that in conjunction with primary care or endocrinology for these patients uh, that are more brittle, then that's fine. Do remember that right now, type one diabetes is a contraindication to the use of SGLT2 inhibitor. So overall, these drugs are very well tolerated. You can just add on irrespective of whether somebody has diabetes or not. And patients who have heart failure, who are on one, two, or three drugs, irrespective, they need uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin or dapagliflozin for HEF-REF. For HEF-PEF, there is no standard of care till these therapies are coming out and the guidelines are evolving. So I hope uh, that this helps you not only in terms of the importance of SGLT2 inhibitor, but some practical management tips as well. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.